Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. America's Voice of Reason. Boyd Matheson on Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. Well, many people point to one of the hallmarks of our technological achievements in the 21st century has been the development of clean energy. Electric powered vehicles, solar powered homes, and cities may soon be the standard in the country and elsewhere in the world. However, we have to be realistic as we look at the path forward on that. Uh, These new energy sources are not free, and they do not come without their own footprint when it comes to the environment. Uh, They have mineral requirements that need to be mined. Other production costs, of course, are incurred as well. So using the data we have to project forward into the future, one thing becomes really clear. Uh, One, we don't produce enough of the needed minerals to fully make the switch to clean energy right now to net zero emissions. So what do we know? What can we do about it? What is the path? What's a realistic conversation uh, rather than just the rhetoric? And to help us do that, we always look to our good friend and inside source, Phil Rossetti, resident senior fellow at the R Street Institute, where he focuses on energy, climate, and environmental policy. Phil, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, great, uh, great writing as always. Uh, as you look at the the path on all of this, which I think is just important, I think we can all say yes. We're all for preserving, being careful stewards of the environment, all of those things, and we have to have a realistic conversation in terms of the path there. Uh, so, from from your research and your dive, looking at the the mineral component to all of these, where are we really? Uh, The short answer is we're not even remotely close to what the politicians tend to describe. Uh, So basically what I did is I looked at some of these projections of what it would take to get the net zero emissions. And then I said, all right, you know, here's how much energy we consume in the U.S. So here's how much we would need for minerals. And then look at, okay, how much of that are we producing domestically? Uh, and for you know some minerals, we basically need like uh, you know, over a hundred times what we're already producing, and um, and others, you know, even just kind of like doubling it still wouldn't be enough. Uh, so what we're seeing is, for some resources like copper and lithium, you know, we've got a lot of potential to maybe get close to what we would need domestically. Uh, but then you look at like cobalt and nickel, and even with uh, all the potential projects, we're still going to be import reliant for you know, over 99 percent. Uh, so we're, we're far, uh, far cry from this sort of idea of the U.S. being the leader on producing these minerals and technologies and exporting them. Yeah. So, so give us a, a little bit of a, an insight, dig into that just a little for us in terms of what does that mean when we talk about things like cobalt uh, that we always reference in terms of uh, batteries for electric cars and so on? 
what is it? What's the process there? What can we produce here? What are we relying on others for? How clean is that? Uh, give us some sense of that. Yeah, so most lithium-ion batteries require either you know, cobalt and lithium or they'll use some nickel to substitute for the cobalt. And the big challenge is most of the world's cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and most of that is refined by Chinese state-owned enterprises. So they have almost an effective monopoly on that supply. Uh, in the U.S., there's some push to try to improve cobalt refining and, and stand up some of it here, but we just don't have that much cobalt domestically to do that. So some folks have been saying, okay, you know, we're going to look at nickel. Uh, and what I did is I said, okay, you know, here's how much nickel we would need, and here's how much we can produce. And we have the potential roughly triple our nickel production. We only have one nickel mine in the U.S. in operation. There are two proposed mines. And uh, even with those, we'd still be about 95% import reliant for nickel. Lithium is one of the bigger components, and that is really interesting because we pretty much produce almost no lithium right now, but we could get to close to half of our potential lithium needs for net zero uh, grid and everything. It's a pretty lofty target uh, if we're just going to pursue some of the big lithium projects that we have right now. Uh, but uh, in terms of could we ever get fully there? Are we going to be like a major exporter or anything? Um, yeah, it's probably not looking good. Uh, but we do have a lot of potential to reduce the prices just by increasing the production here. Yeah. And uh, something you said uh, just really grabbed my attention, Phil, as it always does when we listen to you. <laughs> and that is the fact that on the on the cobalt side, that China basically has a monopoly on it. So what could possibly go wrong there if uh, we're relying on the Chinese uh, to deliver on that? And then the other thing that sort of struck me in that same vein is uh, how clean are they extracting that cobalt uh, there in Nigeria? Yeah, this is a big question, actually, because you know, so to address the first part, you know, Chinese control of these supply chains, this is something that policymakers have really started to zero in on. Uh, previously, a lot of the focus is on rare earth elements. But now folks are saying, like, well, hang on a second. You know, they're really involved in lithium refining uh, and a lot of the cobalt refining and materials even for copper and nickel. Uh, so China, their state-owned enterprises kind of insert themselves into these supply chains, even when they're not the ones producing the minerals. And, you know, I think most people would say that that is a, a pretty obvious attempt to try to influence the economics and be able to say, oh, well, we're not going to do business with you know, people we don't like or, or what have you. So there is a big concern there about having our energy systems reliant on Chinese-dominated supply chain. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do? in the face of an international disaster decades in the making. That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. 
Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. And then when we think about, you know, what you kind of raised about is like a more internationally focused justice component, like, okay, you know, if we're not producing it here, what does that mean environmentally abroad? Uh, and, and that's pretty significant. You know, I think there's a lot of saying of, oh, we don't want to do mining here because uh, there's so much risk. But we look at what's happening in China. Uh, there's a, a waste retaining pond for uh, for rare earth mining that's like the size of Central Park. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of concern about the ecological damage from mining overseas where it's not as controlled uh, and not using as much advanced techniques. But even worse, we look at cobalt especially, there's a huge amount of child labor that is used in producing that cobalt. And uh, there have been companies that have been sued because of uh, accusations of them basically propping up a demand that uh, facilitates this. So, yeah, the ethical concerns are, I think, huge. And another reason for why we should say, hey, is it better for us to produce it here? Are we avoiding a harm upstream by doing that? Uh, it's a fair question. It's one that I think the policymakers need to explore more. Yeah, and then I want to add uh, one more component to that is if we do it here, you said that we do have some some capacity in some of these areas to at least take a a good chunk of it and be self-reliant that way. Uh, Tell us where we are in terms of that kind of production and what regulatory hurdles might be slowing down our ability to be a little more independent when it comes to those uh, critical minerals. Yeah, so it's a couple things that are really interesting. One is the permitting side of it. So there's any big project, especially a mine, is going to go through a, a pretty involved environmental review process, which is important. You know, I don't think anyone would say that they don't want that, especially for mining. But what we're seeing is it can take a really long time to prepare these statements, and then it can actually bleed into another administration. Mm. So we saw this with some mines where basically the Obama administration would say, oh, no, we don't want to do this. And then the Trump administration would pick it up and say, oh, you know, we're going to approve this, and here's a new environmental impact statement. And then the Biden administration, again, says, oh, no, no, we're, we're not going to do it. Um, so that sort of permitting certainty is not really there for a lot of this. And that's one of the things that Congress is trying to address now with permitting reform, giving more clarity to the agencies of what they need to actually uh, cover in environmental reviews. Uh, so that is part of it. But the other thing that's interesting is uh, – you know, every mine seems to encounter some sort of almost unique issue. A lot of it is, uh, you know, it can be sacred lands issues, litigation issues. Right. Uh, some mines are just not really popular. There's a big copper mine proposed in Alaska that uh, you know, a lot of folks are saying, hey, you know, what we'll this do for tourism. Uh, so there's not going to be one clear-cut answer for everything. But I think permitting reform especially and giving clarity of saying, here's what you need to be able to do to protect the environment. And if you can meet that target, great, you can do it. And if you can't, then you've got to get up to that standard. That would go a long way to opening the doors to more investment in the U.S. Yeah, uh, great insight as always. Phil Rossetti, resident senior fellow at the R Street Institute. And Phil, always appreciate your perspective on this uh, crucial conversation and very complex uh, when it comes to what are we really doing and is our efforts to be clean and green making us more clean and green or more dependent uh, and maybe a little unsure in terms of the the net impact overall. But uh, great perspective. And these are conversations, as you pointed out, uh, that Congress and lawmakers have got to be having if we're going to get some certainty and some confidence that we can move it all forward. Uh, Phil, thanks again for joining us today. 
Thanks for having me. All right, that's a uh, really important conversation and uh, one that we, we want to be clean, we want to be green, we want to be environmentally respectful and careful stewards of the land. And we have to look at the reality of where those minerals are coming from, who's producing them and in control of them in the supply chain, China. Uh, how clean is it being mined? How ethically, how much child labor is going into that? So we can actually have confidence that we are making a difference for the environment and we can do it in a sustainable way. All right, we'll step aside for a quick commercial break. When we come back, more Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. We'll be right back. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.